How's it going, everybody? That's a great way to start. I tend to, uh, I'm making it a habit. Um, well, <clears throat> my name is Josh Pollard. I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. And uh, tell me, have you ever gotten some mail in your mail that wasn't your mail? It was your neighbor's mail. Happens from time to time, right? And if we're honest, we always want to take a little peek, see what's in there, right? You kind of do, right? Well, you shouldn't because it's a crime, so don't do that. But today in church, we're going to do that. We're going to read someone else's mail. It's okay. Uh, that's because we're in our second week of our study of the book of Philemon. And Philemon is a short letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a guy named Philemon. And uh, it is every bit as dramatic as finding out your neighbor is part of Manage of the Month Club or whatever it is that they get in the mail. So open up your Bibles to the book of Philemon. It's only one chapter long. It's short. We're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 16 today, where we get to Paul's reasoning for writing the letter. Remember, it's a short book. It's near the end of the Bible. It comes just before the book of Hebrews. You can find that one. And if you're using the Bibles under your chairs, it's on page 816. As you're finding that, remember, last week we talked about how Paul has been, uh, while Philemon is a church leader, a local church leader, much loved, and was previously led to Christ by the Apostle Paul. And Paul has now been building him up, saying all these great things about what a godly man this guy Philemon is, that he has a deep love for the Lord and a deep faith and a love for God's people. And he's an encourager and refresher of the hearts of God's people. And now Paul has a request of him. So let's pick up our reading. We're going to be in verse 8. It says, Therefore... Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him. With me, so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I do not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. All right, let's pray, church. Oh, Heavenly Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, we, uh, we come to worship you today. We ask that you would open our eyes to uh, the meaning of this text and why you have made it so important in our lives. We ask your Holy Spirit, come here and transform our minds, our hearts, our whole lives to be your children. We'd ask that you help us know the truth uh, so that we can glorify you. And we can spread that truth. We do this all in love for you, Father. We praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, we're introduced to this new guy, Onesimus, who uh, was a runaway slave that belonged to Philemon. And now he has somehow gotten connected with Paul while he's in prison. And Paul has led him to Christ, which is what he's referring to back in verse 10. When he says uh, that he became his son, he means his spiritual son. And now Paul is sending him back to Philemon and wants Philemon to accept him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, and then to possibly send him back to Paul to help Paul in his ministry while he's stuck there in prison and stuff. So I think when you read this, it sounds like such a great 
uplifting tale of redemption and restoration. You know, you got these two people who are at this very serious contention uh, with each other, but now they are made brothers through the work of the gospel. And they, they, uh, their whole lives are changed because of that. And I think it sounds like the makings for a feel-good movie, right? Something on Hallmark. They're changed. They're brothers now. However, this week, when I was studying this passage... This question kept coming to my mind that I just could not shake. I could not get away from it. And I think the Holy Spirit just put it there. And he said, this is, I want you to think about this. And my question is this. When you look at what Paul says here, one could conclude that Paul's reasoning for setting Onesimus free was that he was now a brother in Christ. My question is, why wasn't his reasoning for setting him free just because slavery was wrong? Wouldn't that be better? You know, I think it, there's an underlying question there that then, well, if he's not a Christian, was it okay that he could just still be your slave? Is that what the Bible teaches here? And I'm not alone in that question, I think. Throughout history, this passage and other parts of the New Testament that deal with this subject have had quite a difficult history of interpretation and application. Very difficult. And I think historically, it's been addressed in one of three ways quite commonly. The first way that history has uh, interpreted passages like this is to justify slavery. For example, in the American slave trade, American uh, white Christians in the South would point to Philemon as a good Christian slave owner. You see? Yeah, you can own slaves just like Philemon did. They would point to passages like Ephesians 6. It says this. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win, them, win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. And they would say, you see right there, it's okay. You just got to be nice to them. Paul and Jesus, they would say, had ample opportunity to just say, you can't have slaves, but they didn't. They never said that. So it's just fine. And I hope that we would all bristle at that interpretation, but you might be able to see how some can say, well, see, the Bible's pro-slavery. They never said it wasn't okay, so it must be okay. In fact, this justice this week, I read an article of a guy in Florida who's trying to get the Bible banned in public spaces like public schools and libraries. And one of his main reasons was that it is a pro-slavery book, he says, citing that passage in Ephesians right there that we just read. Is that what the Bible teaches? The second way that we see this historically dealt with, and it's much more common in our day, is to not use it to justify slavery in general, but to point out the differences between American slavery and Roman slavery in an effort to possibly justify Philemon's slaves without justifying American slavery. And they often do this by saying, well, it wasn't like that back in, in Roman times. It wasn't like the dehumanizing chattel slavery of the Atlantic slave trade. It was more like indentured servitude. Indentured servitude is a system where somebody that's deep in poverty, deep in debt, would sell themselves in an effort basically to work off 
their debt. And I don't really find that conclusion very comforting either, because it suggests that the Bible teaches, well, it might not teach that you can enslave people on racial or nationalistic lines, but if they're poor, it's okay. Yeah, if they're poor, then the Bible's okay with it. You can enslave them. Is that what the Bible teaches? When they try and separate these two forms of slavery, American and Roman, they often leave out that oh, we don't know how Onesimus became a slave. You know, selling yourself as an indentured service, uh, indentured servant was a way, but it wasn't the main way that you became a slave. The main way in the Roman world was that you were born to a slave mother who was a captive of a Roman war. Rome was always at war, conquering territory. And they leave out the part where the master could just sell you off as a baby if you wanted to, or sell your mother and break up the family, or the father if he was a slave too. They leave that part out. It was completely up to their discretion. They'll try and separate the two, and they'll say, well, in, in Roman slavery, they could have a number of different jobs. You know, sure, they could be manual labor, yeah, but they could also be teachers, or they could be philosophers even, or even doctors. And they, they forget that that is completely up to the owner's discretion. Whether you are a doctor, or a maid, or a concubine for him, or just an object of physical pleasure, if you understand what I mean. It was completely up to his discretion if you were fed or starved or beaten or just fine and treated great. Totally at their discretion. As a runaway slave, Onesimus was now a fugitive of the Roman Empire, and he faced very serious physical punishment if he was captured by a slave hunter and returned to his master for the bounty. So was Roman slavery and American slavery different? Technically, there were differences, but it was slavery. I think we need to stop pretending like indentured servitude is some good Christian thing. Like it's some unpaid college internship where you're, you know, you're, you're just waiting to start paying your student loans eventually. That's the second way it's been dealt with. The third way uh, is that you get this interpretation that says, okay, well, Roman slavery, it wasn't great. But Paul and Jesus didn't say, you know, they, they couldn't just come in and set all the slaves free because it basically just wouldn't work. You know, you'd either A, start a slave revolt and get them all killed, or B, you'd get all these poverty-stricken slaves out on the Roman streets and they'd die of exposure and hunger. And uh, we wouldn't want that now, would we? And then I say, well, that's pretty uncharacteristic hesitation from a guy like Paul that starts riots wherever he goes, right? And Jesus, who says, pick up your cross and follow me, and then you get this other interpretation that says, well, you know, Jesus didn't come to change Roman law, and slavery was legal. In fact, it was expressly illegal to set your slave free until they were at least 30 years old. And to that I say, okay, so you're saying the Bible says it's okay uh, to have slaves as long as it's not illegal? And so... These are the questions I was wrestling with this week. And as a man who my deepest desire is to form my life to Scripture, to be shaped by His Word, I'm perplexed about what to do about Onesimus, the runaway slave, and Philemon, the good Christian slave master. What am I to understand about that? Are those other interpretations valid, good interpretations? 
Is the Bible pro-slavery? Is this what it teaches? Is there room for it? Are those people that say the Bible is morally questionable at best and an explicit tool for oppression at worst correct? Are they right? Is my immediate negative response to the idea of slavery an aspect of Christ in me, or is it just modern morality that I assume the Bible agrees with? That's questions we've got to ask. And I think to address my concern here, I have to do something if my deepest desire is to be shaped by God's word. Then I must approach scripture with a blank slate. And I have to let the text speak for itself. And I have to form my life to the conclusion that God gives me and not the starting place that I come at it with. No matter what it is, that's what I have to do. And so we're going to try and do just that. We're going to read this text, Philemon 8 through 16. Let it speak and see what it says. So we're going to start in verse 8. Verse 8 starts like this. It says, therefore. Okay, stop right there. I think we're on to something, you guys. (laughs) Therefore. Whenever you see therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And I think it's important because it says that the request that Paul is about to make is based upon the character of Philemon that he just gave us. He gave us this characteristic of Philemon. He's saying, now, therefore, because that is true, if you were not a Christ-loving man, if you did not have a deep faith and a deep love for God's people, then the request I'm about to make wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't work. But because you are Philemon, because you are a Christ-loving man, you will understand what I'm about to do. And then the sentence that follows, I believe, is the crux of the entire book. So don't miss it or you miss everything. Don't read it too fast or you're going to miss what Paul does with the rest of the letter. Not just what he says, but what he does. So he says this. He says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. In other words, he's saying he would have full authority in Christ as Philemon's spiritual father and as the apostle to just order Philemon around, to tell him what to do, to set Onesimus free and send him back to him. He could do it. He had the authority. He was totally justified if the whole letter said, Dear Onesimus, or Dear Philemon, Onesimus is free. He's with me now. Love, Paul. The end. It would have been totally correct. It would have been totally fine. He had the authority to demand. He was the authority figure. So tell me, what type of people give orders? You see what he's doing here? He's taking the language of the slave owner. Normally, it's Philemon ordering Onesimus, but here we have Paul who has the ability to give orders. He's saying, Philemon, you may have authority over your slaves, but I have authority too, and my authority is over you. And now watch how I show you how to wield authority as a Christ lover. And then what does he say in verse 9? He says, I could order you, but but yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Love. Love is preferable to Paul. It is superior to Paul. It is better than, more effective than, giving orders, even in positions of authority. And I think you can see that in his behavior even. The whole time he is behaving very Christ-like in the entire letter. He's not just asking Philemon to set Onesimus free, but he's showing Philemon how Christian authority works how it really looks. 
He says, I could order you. I could do it, but I won't. I refuse to. He is modeling behavior. Paul is constantly humbling himself. He hasn't claimed the position of, of apostle in the whole letter, the whole time. He's instead drawn upon this image of himself as very humble, in a humble position, right? He's called himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus two times. That's the identity he takes in this letter, which is unique for a Pauline letter. Usually, this is Paul the apostle talking. Here, it's Paul the prisoner. He does it twice, verse 1 and 9. He points out that he's in chains for the gospel twice, verse 10 and 13. He calls himself an old man. He says he refuses to keep Onesimus without Philemon's consent in verse 14 so that nothing he does would be compelled, so that anything he does would be a favor done voluntarily, even though he is the apostle Paul and he could just order it. This is authority in action. We see in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5 to 7, which Philemon would have been familiar with, Paul writes this. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. The Greek word right here in Philippians 2 that calls Christ a servant is doulos. And the Greek word in Philemon verse 16 that calls Onesimus a slave is doulos. It's the same word. So Paul, who, though he does have valid spiritual authority over Philemon in Christ, is not considering that authority in Christ as something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he makes himself an old prisoner of Christ Jesus in chains, taking on the very image of Onesimus, a slave, who he calls his very heart. You see what he's doing? It's more than just what he's saying. If we look at Paul's words, we only see one relationship changed by the gospel, from slave and master to brothers. But if we look at Paul embodying Christ's approach to authority and emptying himself out of any advantage he might have, then we see a shift fundamentally in how we relate to all people as Christ followers. It's a total undermining of the entire concept of slavery. There's no place in that for the concept of slavery. And it's not just because they're brothers. It's because they're fellow men. Look at verse 16. He calls him a very dear fellow man. So it's not just for Christians. This is how you relate to everyone. On a basis of love, from a place of humility. Remember, Christ said, don't just love those who love you back. Even love your enemies. What I see here, you guys, in the book of Philemon is just a masterful teaching by the Apostle Paul on Christian authority. Is authority bad? No, it's not. Christ has authority. Paul had authority. How you use that authority is what is in laser focus in the book of Philemon. Paul, in effect, is saying, look at me, Philemon. Don't just do what I say. Do what I do. And he said this to other people, too. He said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So we look at how he lives his life and follow that example. He's not just speaking. He's portraying for Philemon what to do. He's modeling Christian behavior. Because Christ is our model for life. And then we have Paul imitating Christ. 
and he's calling Philemon then to imitate him as well. So make your life Christ-shaped. Do not insist on your own way. Don't take advantage of anything you have over someone else for your own advantage. Don't use authoritative coercion to get your way, but instead appeal from a humble place on a basis of love, as Christ did, as Paul is now doing. Because that's how our master did it for us. Could not God have just forced himself upon humanity? Does he not have the rightful authority and power to just make us love him and worship him and do his bidding? He does. The answer to that is yes, he does. He totally could, and he'd be totally in the right, totally justified. Nothing wrong with that at all, because that's his place. He has rightful authority. But instead, he appeals to us on the basis of love so that our worship is not forced, but voluntary. And since the Bible's calling on our life is to be formed into the likeness of Christ, I would conclude, I must conclude, that the Bible is an emphatically anti-slavery book. That there is no place in the gospel for slavery. It's completely antithetical to the very concept of slavery. I must conclude that based on my understanding of Scripture. Now you might ask, if that is the case, if that is what Philemon is teaching here, then why didn't the man Philemon... A church leader converted by Paul himself not already know that. And to that, I would say, Christianity is a journey. Salvation is a moment. Sanctification is a journey. It's a process. You're saved in a moment, but you're changed into Christ's likeness over time. And even for leaders, they have room to grow. And the good ones like Philemon embrace that and share it. Pass it forward. Slavery was a norm in their day. It wasn't as obvious as it might be to us. So for them, it might not be in lesson one. It might be a much meatier lesson that takes some spiritual maturity to understand. So the book of Philemon is not some obscure personal letter, you guys. It is the cutting edge of the gospel in action against social norms. And I think Philemon understood that. If it had been just a simple letter, he could have said, okay, I'll send him back to Paul and thrown the letter away. But then we wouldn't have it in our hands today, would we? Instead, he took this letter and he passed it forward. Remember, Paul addressed this letter back in verse 2, not just to Philemon, but to Philemon and Apphia and Archippus and the whole church in, in their home. Paul meant it as a church teaching, not just as a personal request. And I believe that this letter has survived 2,000 years because it was understood as a deeply theological gospel teaching. And Philemon's response wasn't just okay and throw it away. It was make copies of this and send it to the churches in Philippi and Corinth and in Rome and Jerusalem and spread it. And the whole thing went viral. And the early church understood the deep theological importance of this letter. And that's why we have it today. And that's why it's included in the New Testament alongside works like Romans and Hebrews and Revelation and Luke and John. It's not some obscure little letter. It's deeply theologically important. And now someone might hear that and think, well, okay, Josh, but if Christians in the first century knew that slavery was so unchristlike, then why didn't, why did it take 1800 years for slavery to be so, to be widely rejected? Why did it take so long? And I think that's a fair, a fair question. And for that, I would borrow a note from our Reformed brothers and sisters. Uh, there's a traditional slogan from the Reformation that says, Reformed and always reforming. 
You gotta remember, it took until the Protestant Reformation of 1517, 1500 years, to get pulled back to Scripture as our main authority. There have been long chapters, long periods of church history where the church in large part has strayed from Scripture, and it must be every generation's duty, including ours, to have our hearts reformed by Scripture, to Scripture. Otherwise, it will be formed by the world. And we can look at those long, dark chapters in church history where the Scriptures, if they were read at all, were twisted into a tool of personal advantage and an explicit tool for oppression and simply call them what they were. It was bad biblical interpretation. It was bad theology. It was bad discipleship. And it was not Christian. It was not what the gospel teaches. It is not what the Bible teaches. Bad theology doesn't become correct theology just because it's been around for a long time. And the people, or even the whole generations, even to this day, that suggests that the Bible is a pro-slavery book, they're just wrong. It doesn't. Okay. Now, my hope today is that I didn't have to convince anyone of the wrongs of slavery. All right? I hope we're all kind of on the same page on that already. All right? It wasn't my goal. But hopefully now you know why the Bible is anti-slavery. And why when we hear those charges that they're incorrect and how we can show that they're incorrect. And I do know that we all do have relationships. And I hope that the book of Philemon teaches us how to, the foundation of those relationships. That we as Christians refuse to insist upon our own way, refuse to use our advantage, and instead appeal on the basis of love as Christ did for us. I think in Scripture, sometimes, if we can apply the gospel to the most extreme examples, like slave and master, then in our mundane lives, it applies all the more. And then my second goal is that maybe some of us have had reservations about Christianity because of what we've heard happen in church history, just terrible things. And what you've heard the Bible might teach, and you've heard about the wounds it has validly created throughout history, and I'd say that's fair. And as someone once said, I don't know who, but somebody smart, they said, the best therapy is good theology. And I hope that I've helped with that a little bit today. Because when you become a Christian, you have to know that you're not putting your faith in church history. And you're not putting your faith in Christians. You're putting your faith in Christ himself, that he has the answers, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for all our sins. And when he was our enemy still, when we were his enemy and he could have rightly crushed us and commanded us and bent us to his will, instead he took our place and took the punishment and now he appeals to us on the basis of love so that when we turn our lives over into his hands that where they rightfully belong, that it's a thing of voluntary action, not a thing of coercion. And if you want to do that today, then we want to make an opportunity, uh, an opportunity for that. As a church, we want every opportunity for people to come into the kingdom of God and to point the way there as often as we can and encourage people to take that step because it's the best thing. And the way we're going to do it is to have everyone bow your heads and close your eyes and pray. We should always do this just bathed in prayer when people are considering joining God's family and pray. And if you want to give your life to the God that appeals based on love instead of coercion. And I just want you to raise your hand. Go ahead and raise it right now, and that way we can get you some information that you might need. 
Philemon has helped you see that God appeals to us out of love. And today's a great day to start serving and loving that God, to see him as your father. That's okay. You guys can go ahead and open your eyes. Thank you guys for uh, letting me do this study with you guys. It's an intense topic, but I think it's a question that we have to revisit sometimes and really push ourselves against Scripture to see if what we believe is just us in our modern world or if it's what Scripture teaches. Because we as Christians need to be molded to the Word of God alone and not just to our modern morality. There's a lot of assumptions that we assume the Bible agrees with us. A lot of times we have to ask that. And I think this was a good time for that. We never know where the world's going. So we always got, always got to be ready. All right? Let's pray. King of kings, Father, Master, we love you so much. We worship you, we serve you out of the love of our hearts. Because you came first to love us, to show us the way to life. You could have bent us and crushed us and justifiably judged our sin upon our own heads, but instead you lovingly took that yourself. We ask you would help change our minds and our hearts that we would not treat each other as things to take advantage of, but instead treat each other as dear brothers and sisters, as dear fellow humans that are your creation and that we wouldn't take advantage of each other, but that we would relate based on love, appeals of love, so that we could be more and more like you. We praise your name, Father. Amen.